hustlers, road players, tournament champions. Hear the stories, get their advice, learn about their lives. Our host, Joey Ryan, brings you an inside look at the professional pool player. You're listening to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Hey, welcome to the Pool Player Podcast brought to you by Pool Scene 365. I'm your host, Joey Ryan. Today's guest has just an incredible resume. She's a former world snooker champion, world English billiards champion, and world nine ball champion, and has won those titles multiple times. She's also a former world 10 ball champion, and she's a multiple time WPBA player of the year. And most recently she was inducted into the BCA Hall of Fame. That's right, it's Kelly Fisher. And you know, the thing I was most impressed with talking to Kelly was not all those accolades and everything that she's done on the pool table or the snooker table, but she just seemed to be a genuine, incredible human being. And I think you're really gonna enjoy this episode. Some of the topics that we dove into, we talked about her start in snooker, what got her into it, a little bit about her family background and her father's history, I think you'll appreciate. Some of the things she does other than pool that help her with her mental focus. We also talked about some of the health challenges that she's had over the years and how she's overcome that to go back and win the World Nine Ball Championship and eventually be inducted into the BCA Hall of Fame. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, it's Kelly Fisher. I know you have a background in snooker. That's where you got your start, but take us through those early years and kind of what led you to snooker. Well, to be honest with you, when I think back, I was always interested in it. My parents had a pub here in the UK and it was actually from when I was born, they were running a pub and it had a snooker table in it. Now, I don't recall this, but apparently I always wanted to play on it. And I weren't allowed, obviously, because it was a member's pub and I really weren't allowed. But I used to try and sneak in there from a very young age. And even my brother, my, uh, my dad got a crate, a beer crate, turned it upside down and let me sneak on the table. But I think they got in trouble a few times for doing that. So then they changed pubs where my parents owned their own pub and uh, it had an English pool table in it. And I used to play the guys in there uh, for, a, for a pound. At this age, I was around about nine, nine or 10 when they changed pubs. And I'd play the guys for a pound, you know, which is like a dollar thirty, something like that. And I remember saving up uh, over 500 pounds, which is like I say, about six, seven hundred dollars. Um, over the, you know, however long, playing for just a pound a game. So obviously I could hit a ball, but, you know, I've got a picture from way back that you really, I had a bad cue action. <laughs> for that one. But um, so I was, was interested in it. It was very popular snooker over here in the UK in the 80s. And it was on TV all the time. And I watched it all the time, well, along with other sports. I was very interested in sports in general. So basically I was doing Kung Fu at that, from a young age, from about seven year old. And um, I was you know, involved with that because my dad being, he was a boxer. And so basically what happened, my dad just said, do you want to go for a game? A game of snooker on a big table. And I'm like, yeah, that would be great. I was 12. And we went to um, the town and went into the snooker club. And I'm there hitting balls, playing away, really excited just to be playing on a big table. And my dad went to the bar to get us a, a coffee or a, 
Coke or something. And there was a poster uh, on the wall saying uh, local coach available, Lionel Payne, contact, da, 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 be asked behind the bar for more details. So my dad asked behind the bar, you know, for some more information regarding this coach. And the lady said, oh, that's, that's a coincidence, but it's sitting right here. And there was Lionel uh, sitting at the bar having a sandwich or something. <laughs> um, so he come and spoke to my dad and um, he glanced over, looked at me and said, she's a little bit small at the moment, a bit short, maybe bring her back in a year. My dad said, okay, no problem. Uh, that'll, be, that'll be fine. And he stood a little longer watching. Again, I've no idea this is all going on. I'm just excited and hitting balls. And uh, he, he glanced over again and watched me hit a few balls. And he said to my dad, no, I've changed my mind. Let's start today. And uh, I was like 12 then, and he's still my coach today. So we've had our 30th year anniversary together. He's like my best friend. He's like my family. Um, but yeah, Lionel Payne, great coach and been with me all the way through even though he doesn't play nine ball. He's a lot more familiar with it now, of course, with me and, and he's got a few students, but basically he taught me all about my snooker, all, you know, and now to this day is still, still my mentor, uh, gives me a row for when I do a bad technique or when I've let things slip a little bit. So we speak every week and go through stuff and uh, yeah, he's, uh, He's a great guy, and between him and my parents, you know, have, have helped me to be where I am today. So, you know, you had a pretty, like a really successful snooker career in the UK. I'm curious as to what made you decide to make the switch to pool and come to the United States and compete? Well, to be honest with you, it was a bit of a no-brainer, really. Um, I enjoyed playing snooker. I loved it, and at the time, I was winning. I you know, my goal was to be world champion and I was at that moment world champion and winning most events, to be honest. But the financial reward was never really there. You know, I had to win events each month or every, every time we had an event just to pay my mortgage. You know, I was under a lot of pressure. Um, if I wanted to do it full time, I really had to uh, more or less win every event to, to cover just even a, a, a decent salary to live you know it was never never luxurious in any way shape or form so it was hard work but I was young I didn't care so I thoroughly enjoyed playing never thought too much about the money until I had a mortgage and then it was just like right you have to win um, but I enjoyed the challenge unfortunately in 2003 um, the sponsorship for all the ladies events which was tobacco sponsorship all the men's and ladies events most of them uh, were sponsored by tobacco um, and the government banned tobacco sponsorship for all sports in our country so basically what happened then um, even the men's game took a big hit um, and the women's game really basically had no events um, so I won the world championships in May and looking forward to we always had a break in the season looking forward to starting in October uh, August sorry for the next event which is the same every year and um, I got a back then no email it was by post I got a letter in the mail saying um, you know unfortunately we've lost the sponsorships and there's no foreseeable events scheduled because we have to find new sponsors and things like that well at that time I'm devastated of course but um, you know I didn't know what I was going to do I knew Alison Fisher had gone over to America 
Karen Cole by then had gone over to America, Kim Shaw, la la la. So I knew that that was, in fact, that always played in my mind. But at the time, I was just enjoying winning and, and you know, in, enjoying that time, really. Um, so anyway, I thought I'd ride it out a little bit and um, see how, <laughs> how long I could last. Uh, but I had to get a job. I just thought maybe they'd get a new sponsor, you know. So, But I had to get a job. It wasn't happening. So um, I ended up, myself and partner, we, we had to both get a job. And um, we end, ended up in a, a vegetable factory. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, I was the current world champion. And uh, I was basically in a, in a vegetable factory sorting out veg and stuff. And uh, a conveyor belt going by. And I was picking out the green beans and stuff. You know, it was... It was uh, you know, many people do that and I respect them for, for that, but it just wasn't what I was used to. And it, for me, I just, I don't know, for both of it, I couldn't, I couldn't continue it. And I'll be honest with you, we lasted three days. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then after three days, yeah. And then after that, um, I ended up working at a seatbelt factory. You know, when you put the seatbelt on and you click it into the box, well, I was making that box which, uh, you know, the spring inside, and I know all how that works, but yeah, I lasted a month. Um, so that, it just wasn't for me. And in that time, I got in touch with Kim Shaw, who's my uh, best friend. And um, she basically said, look, leave it with me. I'll try and get you a sponsor over here, see if we can get things going. But of course, nobody knew me over in America. So, um, uh, you know, she basically had a bit of a task ahead of her and, you know, she did. She managed to find a pool room in uh, in Staten Island, New York, that would sponsor me to be the house pro. And uh, both myself and partner went over there and moved in with Kim and her partner at the time. And uh, we put the house on the market and went with, uh, we had no money. And when my parents gave me, uh, I think it was 400 pounds, which worked out to be 750 US dollars. And for two people, we went come to America with 750 US dollars, five suitcases of luggage, and uh, the house on the market. Um, closed the door with everything in the house, the furniture, everything, uh, even the knives and forks, and um, stayed at in Kim's flat apartment. Sorry, I said flat. That's British. Uh, in Kim's apartment, and uh, yeah, started from there basically. That's where it began in America. You know, Kelly, that's one of the reasons that I'm doing this. You know, I, I've played pool for a while and I'm a, I'm a good amateur pool player and never really played professionally, but I've met so many professional pool players that just have a story, you know, and I want people to hear this story, you know, because it's, it's amazing, like to leave not just your country, but a continent with $750 in your pocket and the belief that you can make it, you know, and, and you did, you know, so I, I think that's wonderful. And so I, I want to share these stories uh, from you and from everyone. So tell us about the first few years of kind of getting settled into the United States and, you know, take us through that period of time, because as you mentioned, Allison was here, she was on top of the world, I'm sure. Karen was right there kind of starting to run neck and neck with her. And, yeah. you know, I started hearing your name like not long after you got over here and, um, and it took a little while, but then you're right up there in the conversation. So take us through those first few years. 
Well, basically, well, thank you. You know, I agree with you about the stories. A lot of players, you know, didn't just land on their feet and become a world champion or a top player. They, they struggled, you know, and I think that's what makes them a fighter and gives them the, the passion and the heart to, to do what we do. Because, uh, you know, our sport, however much we all love it, it isn't as lucrative as your golf, your tennis. So, you know, we, we continue to put the hours in and travel all around the world, um, you know, for not the reward like some sports, but yet we still love it and have the passion to do so. So I think it's it's great to have that feedback and then stories from all the other players, that, you know, and thank you for you for doing that and spreading the, the passion we all have. So Absolutely. Uh, back to your question. Yeah, basically, I so all that happened in 2003, uh, at the end of 2003, and I was, next thing, we were in America by February 2004. And... The, the funny thing was, I'm not going to go all the way through it, but the first thing, I remember we arrived on a Wednesday and Kim said to me, we've got a tournament at the weekend in Maryland. I said, right, okay. I said, all right. She said, it's a qualifier, WPBA qualifier. If you qualify, then you can play in the pro event. And I said, right, okay. I didn't understand nothing. I said, okay. She said, um, you know, basically um, you can't just play in the professional tournaments because you have to get right, you know, win amateur events and get ranked in amateur tours in order to play the next year on the WPBA. I said, right, okay, okay. So I said, right, I don't know the rules and I've not got a cue. <laughs> All right. So I'd never played nine ball before. So um, basically she gave me a cue <laughs> and uh, we drove on Friday to Maryland. And that evening they showed us the rules of nine ball and uh, both myself and Val, my partner, we played in the tournament. And unfortunately, I think Val knocked Kim out and I knocked Tiffany out, oh. or, you know, the pros that were in the event. But the thing was, it was quite funny because we could pop balls, you know, we could pop the balls, no problem. It was just, we didn't know all the, how to jump. We didn't know how to break. We didn't know how to bank. You know, we just, we could pop the balls. That was it coming from snooker. So I got second place in that tournament and managed to get a spot into the WPBA event. So off of that started the ball rolling. And, you know, I was doing great on the amateur. Both of us were, were doing great on the amateur tour, um, which was getting spots for the WPBA. And my first WPBA event was Canada. I played in Windsor, Canada. And who did I draw? I've not seen her for years yet. We were close, good friends in the UK when she was still here. Um, and now great friends uh, now, but who did I draw first round? Alison. Uh. In my very first pro event, I drew Alison first round. I'm like, right, okay. And we, chat, and we laughed and we joked. We said hello. I've not seen her for years and whatnot, but there we go. I drew Alison. I went eight, one up, race to nine. Wow. Eight, one up. Yep. Yeah, didn't think for one minute I could lose because in snooker, you would never, ever lose eight one up. And she beat me nine eight. I missed one shot, a one ball from the break. I missed a silly, you know, it was, uh, and, and then she just snooker me and saved me. And I didn't know why, I was, you know, I was, she tied me in knots and uh, <laughs> she, beat, she beat me nine eight. Yeah, I'll never forget that. So that was my first WPBA event. And then I went on from there and I was very lucky to, uh, to pick the game up quite quickly and um i won the this was 2005 and by the end of 2004 sorry and by the end of 2004 i was i was doing all right i was you know getting some fifth place finishers and stuff like that 
And I think I won my first event um, in 2005, which was a San Diego West Coast Classic. So, you know, I'd, I'd come through as fast as you could come through in the amateur qualifications. And, uh, you know, I was very pleased how, how I was doing, but I also knew that to, to be a top player, it would take a lot of years of practice. It wasn't as easy as I thought it would have been coming from snooker to pool, put it that way. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I kind of wish I would have seen that match with Allison. I can just imagine it, right? Because, you know, when we're coming up as pool players, you know, we learn to, you call it pot balls. We learn to, you know, make yeah. ball. And, you know, for us, it's like, we feel like we can make any ball at the table at a certain point, you know, and then we learn about position and then our shot making kind of goes, you know, a little, a little yeah you know, down. Right. And so I just, you must've been so fun to watch. People would be like watching you make balls and I'm sure they'd be like, but she has no clue how to play safe, you know, or she has no clue what's, you know, but, or the strategy of the game, but that must've awesome. been a really fun time. You just got out there and fired them in. I love it. So yeah. well, you, I mean, I'm sorry. sorry no, I remember one really funny story and I, was on TV on ESPN and I uh, played Vivian Virial and I was on the hill and bearing in mind this is probably year two now or year one and a half I don't know but I didn't know how to bank very well so everything I didn't know how to do I'd you know I had people help me in America I mean my coach Lionel that I mentioned earlier in the in the interview he's still my coach today we've been together for 30 years now which I can't believe wow. I'm even saying that, but that's true. <laughs> 30 years and we still stay in touch all the time and he's great, but he's just, you know, he, he knows more about nine ball now, but back then he was a snooker coach. He didn't really, he couldn't really help me with nine ball as such. All he could do was make sure my technique and my mental side uh, was good. So a lot of people, I had Mikey Knapps from New York help me. I had John Barton help me uh, a lot. And, you know, along the way, Kim also and Tiffany Nelson, Kim Shaw, Many players helped me and people. I was very lucky and everybody was great over there. But in order to learn how to bank, this is the example I want to give. I watched a DVD. I think it was Tom Rossman's DVD, How to Learn How to Kick and Bank. And the M&M system, it's how I teach today, actually, is that system. But the M&M system, I watched that. And back then it was DVD. So you rewind it, fast forward, write the notes, rewind it. And I watched it for hours after hours. So I'm playing Vivian Virial on TV. I think it's US Open uh, semi-final to get in the final, something like that. And to win, I've left myself terrible on the nine and I've got a bank and I'm like, oh no, you know, but I'm thinking, right, okay, you have to remember <laughs> what you wrote down, the M&M system, what you've been practicing. And <laughs> I remember all the girls were there watching, all the other players were there watching, and you could see some of them kind of laughing, not, ha not at me, but in a nice way, because there I am measuring with my stick how to do the system that I'd learned. You know, I looked like I'd just began playing, which I suppose I had, but there I am on TV, yeah. supposedly to be professional, you know. <laughs> I didn't know I'm measuring how to bank over and over again. Uh, because it's worth so much money. I'm, I had no money. You know, I remember having $750. So all of a sudden now this is worth like 10 grand or $6,000. I don't know. I can't remember. But And I'm so nervous. I'm measuring and measuring. And the referee, Steve Titson, said, 10 seconds. And I'm like, oh, 10 <laughs> seconds. Uh, extension, extension. So then, you know, I'm doing it all over again. Oh, dear. Anyway, I made the nine ball and got to the final or whatever. And 
think I lost them, so it doesn't matter. But I'll never forget that coming from snooker to pull what I had to learn and that bank. It's how I teach today, and I always tell that story to my student. Trust me, it works <laughs> because it worked for me that one time. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So coming from snooker to pool, like if I were someone who had never picked up a cue, what sport would you say is more difficult to learn, snooker or pool? Well, that's a good question that I've been asked so many times, and you know, I could talk about it for probably twenty minutes, but. Basically, they're both very different. I think to make the ball, snooker is much harder. As far as the game itself, um, I would say nine balls harder. Because in snooker, to make the ball, the pockets are smaller, the, the table's bigger. So, you know, you've got a bigger area to, and you have to have a very accurate cue action. In nine ball, the pockets being bigger means it allows you to have a sloppier, if you like, cue action and still make the ball but in in snooker we have 15 reds so you can do red color red you've always got an area that you will and we've got six colors to choose from so it's not like with nine ball one you have to get on the two if you don't get on the two then you can't continue so both have their own difficulty level you know in different areas i would say but i would say it's good to if i had a, a child i would say start with snooker simply because if you get the perfect great technique, then that's a much easier transition, I feel, to nine ball than if you play nine ball and you don't have that quite as accurate technique and then you try and play snooker, you could be good, but I don't think you could be the top. Whereas the other way around, I think you could, as Alison has done, Karen, and luckily myself, so... Yeah, that's a great point. I used to compete and uh, I actually grew up in Maryland. So your first story about Maryland, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, but I would compete on the planet, the planet pool tour and a couple of the pool rooms there had uh, 12 foot snooker tables there. So I would get there early and grab a rack of pool balls and throw them out on the 12 foot snooker table and try to make the balls. And then once the tournament started and I got on a nine foot table, it felt like a seven foot bar box. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So exactly. I, Whereas if you go the other way around, oh, yeah. the snooker table feels like a football pitch. If, yes. if, you know, if you've gone the other way around, it's playing pool first. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you describe your first major victory that you had in the United States? I think you mentioned that it was the, uh, in San Diego. Um, what was, was that the moment that you really felt like you arrived? Take us through that tournament. Uh, maybe you can pause the recording here. Let me think of my memory. I, I really. Or maybe there was another moment where you felt like, okay, this is it. Like it was worth taking the $750 and moving to the United States. Like I'm here now. Well, to be honest with you, I knew, I knew once I got there and started playing on the, on the amateur tournaments and started to win them and get my ranking on the amateur side. um, Number one, in order to get a a tour card for the following year but also in between that I qualified for a few of the events I kind of knew that I could do it I did I'm not being big-headed there by any means I knew it was going to be tough and I knew I'd have to practice a lot but I knew there was nothing stopping me from being able to be a top player and do well as long as I put the time and effort in you know and um, gave it 110 percent so 
I think I think that um, I had the confidence, but I just I just I just knew it would just take time, really. And I wanted it now. I remember that thinking, right, I, you know, I know I can do this. And I, I just uh, I'd set goals for myself and then calm down a little bit and just set realistic goals for myself. Uh, but the first major accomplishment, I mean, there was many, even the amateur events, I remember they were like stepping stones of, of my confidence because, um, you know, it, there were so many great players and I just arrived in America and I, you know, I remember the first one that I won. I that felt like I won a world championships. Mm -hmm. And then I went on and played in the uh, U.S. Amateur National Championships, and I won that. That would I would say then give me an indication that right, okay, you, you deserve now to be professional um, on the pro tour. Which I, at that time, um, that was when I transitioned then from that to be on the uh, WPBA professional. Tour completely no more qualifying necessary yeah. so um and i traveled all over the country qualifying it wasn't just as easy as claiming the odd one I, every weekend or every two, second weekend i was somewhere arizona you name it and it was great it was good fun too i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed learning i enjoyed the challenge i enjoyed all the experiences but i'd say that that Tulsa in Tulsa oklahoma for the amateur nationals that was definitely a, a good starting point to think right okay you can really do this um then winning the San Diego Classic uh, for the first time. Again, I won that tournament three years in a row and I, I'm getting old. So my memory of that exact final and how I got there, and it's a little blurry. I think I went through the tournament and beat Jasmine Ocean 7-0 in the final. I wow. Think. Really? Now, I might be quote, saying, quoting wrong there, cause, but that was one of the years. Sorry, Jasmine, but that was one of the years. I think that is that year, actually, because I didn't expect um, I didn't expect to, to win an event so soon. I remember getting to the final, and then I remember this one particular where I, I won 7-0, and it was like, wow, what happened there? Even I didn't really kind of like realize what had happened. So uh, I think that was the first one I won. And then I'm like, right, okay. I'm very competitive uh, natured, of course. I've been doing this all my life, so... Then it wasn't like, there was no question then. It was like, well, right, when am I going to win the next one? Yeah. So in with like Allison, when she was over here uh, and really dominating the sport, and then when Karen came over, you know, we didn't see Allison, at least I didn't, at many, you know, mixed events with men and women, but I did see Karen. And I recall seeing you in a few events with the men, um, do you think that's important for women to get in events with the men uh, to their development? Not necessarily, to be honest with you. Um, I think it's important for women to practice with better play against better players. And I think it's important for anybody, if you can practice against someone at your level, if not better. Um, so, you know, of, of course, as we know, there's some, many great women players um, across the world. But we know the men certainly have a slightly higher standard. If we look at the top men and the top women, the top men have a slightly higher standard than the women. Same in most sports, but that's, that's one thing we know. So I definitely recommend to practice for a woman player or any player to practice with somebody better than you. Uh, but as far as competitions, I kind of, in snooker, I kind of got stung a little bit of that whole 
women should be allowed to play in men's events because in snooker they opened up the pro tour for the, the men's pro tour and allowed women to play on it and i tried Alison tried karen tried we all tried and we fought our way through about 2,000 men players and got ranked in the top couple of hundred. But we never made the cut to where you were on the tour, you got the tour card and you guaranteed, and snooker, if you're in the top 96, you're guaranteed money, regardless of your results. So we never made the cut to that. And I found, I felt that, I'm going back a lot of years now, but I felt that it kind of did more harm than good for the women's tour by doing that. It mm. kind of, you know, if we keep the women's tour and the men's tour separate and then they can have their own individual pedestal, if you like. But mm -hmm. once we start mixing it and, of course, you know, the women will, you're not going to see a woman winning every men's event. You're not going to see her probably winning a men's event. So therefore, it kind of takes away the women's pedestal. It lowers that that whole persona um, and everything. And I think for sponsors and stuff like that. But again, I'm not saying I'm against it because I enjoy playing in men's events. I enjoy playing against the guys. It's a great challenge. And I feed off them not wanting to lose to a girl. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But just that whole experience, it kind of worries me when, when they're mixing tournaments. Um, now we're in 2020, so it might be a total different. I might be looking, you know, keep away from looking back really and uh, focus on now the now. And it might do great for our sport, but... I felt it did hurt the women's snooker. Um, but again, I know Matchroom are, uh, are doing some, like they're opening their events to women. And I'll probably play in some. I probably will play in the US Open, things like that. But ideally, under the perfect ideal world, I'd love to see Matchroom have a women's US Open yeah. and a men's US Open. Playing at the same time, but as separate events. I'd love to see it for the same money, same time, separate events, though. I don't see why we have to mix them, and I don't know many sports that do, really. If you look at golf, tennis, they don't need to mix them, you know, apart from when you play mixed doubles, and I think that's really how it kind of should be and should stay. Yeah, and I guess I, it kind of leads me to another question that I have because, you know, maybe the explanation for why pool and maybe snooker does try to mix them is that, you know, at least in my brain, I have a hard time understanding why men at the top levels outperform women, you know, because it's not a sport where, you know, physical strength is involved. And I'm curious your mm -hmm. thoughts on that, because you did mention the gap between the top men and the top women. Well, I have to say the gap's closing, you know, with, with yourself and, and all the Asian players. I mean, I, I think I That's counted, true. if you look at the top, like 15 players uh, in terms of Fargo rate, female players, you're number seven and everybody else in the top 15 is from Asia. Right. And you guys are really closing the gap on the men. Right. So Siming Chen's close to 800, you know, and Shane Van Boning's like 820 some. So what are your thoughts as to that, that gap there? What, why do you think the men are, you know, slightly outperforming the women these days? Okay. You might not like it, Joey, but I'll tell you my, I'll tell you my thought. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Um, I think first of all, we've got to understand that the amount of men playing compared to the percentage of women playing. So th there's a lot more men players across the world. There's a lot more men playing snooker than women. There's a lot more men playing pool than women. So the percentages 
they kind of give you the odds of, of you know, the percentages of, of how many good players you're going to get out of a larger group than a smaller group. So, but to answer the question a bit more specific, um, I think, <laughs> in fact, I'll tell you, my coach, Lionel, he looked into it when I was young because when I was 12, 13, 14, I was competing at a level and an equal level with all the other boys my age and all the way up to about 16 years old, 17 years old. Did you see that? That very, I would get into finals of the juniors, including the boys. I was getting to semifinals, finals. I won the odd one at the nationals juniors and that were girls and boys. Um, and then all of a sudden you started to see it change where my, whether their improvement sped up faster than mine or whether mine slowed down more than theirs. I, I, don't, I can't answer that question. All you saw was that their improvement seemed to go faster than mine from about the age of 16. And I think obviously once I became a woman, um, then hormones and things like that have a definite impact on it. So why I was laughing earlier was, we, we know that women are good at multitasking, right? And men are not. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm going to get, you're going to get Kelly, a message. Kelly, did you, did you talk to my wife before this interview? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But we know, and, and apparently like, well, Lionel, my coach, he looked into it. And basically men are, men, women are capable of thinking up to five things at one time, whereas a man, giving it 100% equally to each five things. Whereas a man is not. A man is able to, to do multitask for sure, but really is focused 100% on one thing at one time, really. Yeah. So that's like in, in a horse race, it's like a horse with blinkers, if you like. So the advantage a man has by having that ability or lack of ability, joke, joke, um, the advantage in sport, it gives that man, it's like the focus. If you're down on the show, if you're focusing on playing pool or your concentration on your match, it will, it's, superior to a woman's focus on that one thing at that one time so I've seen me miss a nine ball because I got down to the shot and thought about my laundry I, I mean you know and I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to think about my laundry I don't want that to pop into my head or think about what I did yesterday or what I'm going to do later but unfortunately our brains are a little different and you know I do believe that that is a part of it now I'm not saying that's the answer or that's I just believe that has something to do with it because if you look at any sport that's non-physical look at darts look at chess look at apart from in the new movie the uh, new tv series we're seeing right now the queen's gambit if we, if we take away that tv series where she's a champion but um if you even look at chess look at any game um any sport men are slightly better across the board than women hmm. So that's my theory. Sorry for those who don't like it. And I'm not saying I'm right. It's just a, a theory and an opinion. And my coach Lionel found out a bit of information that kind of gave me that. Because no, at I, 16, things changed. Once I became a woman, it was weird. Anyway. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Kelly. And, you know, like I think to this graphic that I saw one time of like a plate of spaghetti, right? And that's how a woman thinks is like her spaghetti's yeah. all over the place, you know? Yeah. And I forget what the man's even said. I, you know, but the woman's had the plate of spaghetti. <laughs> so Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to, especially when I'm trying to focus on playing and, you know, it's like, I don't want to think of anything else, but 
you know, things come into our into my mind and unexpectedly. And it's like, I think the better female players in the world, the difference between them and the ones that haven't quite made it or don't quite make it, maybe is the ones that can actually just funnel or, you know, funnel um, um, their, their focus down instead of for five things down to two or three things or one I don't know then we can focus better certainly I think um, you know uh, the ones that end up being the winners and champions um, that as, along with many other things don't get me wrong I'm just that's just my opinion on the whole focus thing yeah so what's going on with all of the female Asian players that are just performing so well I mean I mentioned you know, if you look at the top 15 and according to Fargo rate, you're in there, you're number seven, but everybody else is either China, Taiwan or Chinese Taipei, uh, Philippines. And then even down to the top 25 that you, you get some other, you know, non-Asian ladies, but what do you think's happening over there? Well, they're, they're machines. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, they're fantastic players. Again, the amount of players training to be a champion we'll never know how many but in China it's a very big country and there's a lot and they take the sport seriously you know they don't just go in a pool room and play a couple of hours after school they actually part of their school is playing for six hours a day from a very young age if, if that's what you're good at whichever sport you know we see them in the Olympics we see them playing ping pong with Whichever sport you're good at, believe me, you will be pushed and you will play that sport and you'll play it seriously from a very young age. They have coaches, national coaches. They have programs in school to, um, for, you know, to help with that sport. Now we're talking about pool. I've been to a few schools in China and Taiwan that basically they get up, they go to school at seven. They live at the school, some of them, but the ones that at 7 a.m. they start doing their um, math and their their literature and stuff like their schoolwork, if you like, and then one o'clock they finish that one p.m. and then they start playing pool till eight p.m. one to eight p.m. they play pool. So their first, you know, their day is very long. Can you imagine in America or in the UK telling our children that's what they have to do? That would just wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but that's that's what I've heard of some schools actually do, and you know, the Co brothers, fantastic players. I went to their school and uh, that's actually one school that they told me they, they board there, they stay there, they live there uh, Monday to Friday, but they have to start schoolwork at something like crazy, like 7am. And then they play pool all the way till 8pm at night and their coach lives there, you know, he's there every day. Yeah. I've been there, I've been to and seen the kids playing there. So, you know, it's a different mentality that, than, than we have in the Western world. You know, we want to have fun. We want to not have fun, but we want just a, a very, um, I don't know, a balanced life, if you like. Whereas uh, for them, and not all of them, but for them, if, if they want to be a champion, then there's only one way. And yeah. uh, I think your Chen Siemens people, are, they practice a lot of hours, a lot of hours. And, you know, it's, um, that's why I call them robot, little robots. But no, they're great players and, um, you know, you can't take nothing away from it. They practice hard and they deserve, they deserve what they, they get when they put that amount of time in. So one of the things I want to do with this podcast is to extract some knowledge and information from top players like yourself to really help, you know, up and coming players or just people who are trying to improve. And I'm wondering, 
you know, if you think back, you, you know, you, you knew how to, to make balls, pot balls from playing snooker, but you really had to learn the game of pool when you moved over here. What is, you know, some like a key piece of advice that you could share with the audience to really help them improve their pool game? Well, I think one thing that, you know, is important is your fundamentals. We really need, you really need to get a good, solid fundamentals technique so that that way, you know, you can always rely on that to uh, when you're having a bad day to get you out of trouble. But about the game, you know, the first thing you, as well you need to have is passion and really love the, love the sport, love playing. And then after that, it requires a lot of discipline, a lot of practice and um, stay confident, you know, and, and, and self-belief. It, it takes a lot of things. There's not really just one piece of advice other than the first thing you need is the love for the game, the passion for the game, and then the technique. That's how I teach. Give you a good technique, then we can move forward. Then you can pop balls and make balls, and we can then teach you all the different areas of the game. Um, there's so much to learn, and it's a wonderful sport that we have. So, you know, I'd recommend anybody just to really who enjoys it, just put the time in, put the discipline in, and you'll see your game improve for sure. So Kelly, I know over the years you've had some challenges, some personal health challenges and other things. How has that impacted uh, both in a positive and a negative way your pool game? Well, um, believe it or not, I'm actually was always really fully healthy. It's, it's weird. I had um, I needed open heart surgery in 2014, which came out of the blue completely. And it was from a birth defect. So I felt great. I was at the gym. I was doing great. <laughs> Nothing was wrong. Uh, I was winning. Everything was going great, roughly, right before then. But I just felt some weird sensations, some palpitations and things. Got it checked out. Um, and to find that was shocking. Uh, anyway, luckily, being a birth defect, once I had the open-heart surgery and the repair was done, and for me, luckily, I'd caught it in time. There was no permanent damage. So my recovery was tough. You know, it was tough open heart surgery. You're being cut right down here. And of course, when we play, we're having to move there. So it was very difficult. And after that, I was just getting back into the swing of things, you know. And in 2015, I had to have, um, well, I didn't have to. I decided to have preventative treat, preventative surgery. Um, as I was told, I had the cancer gene, uh, the BRCA, like Angelina Jolie, if you like. I'd lost both my parents by this time uh, to cancer. Mm -hmm. So uh, my doctor gave me the, suggested I had the gene test. And, it, and, you know, I'm always very optimistic. I never thought for one minute I would have the cancer gene, but I did. I had two, actually, two gene mutations. So I chose to take the prevent, prevention, preventative action, sorry. And I decided to uh, have a double mastectomy and a, and a full hysterectomy to avoid um, the chance of breast cancer and ovarian cancer, which I lost my mom with ovarian. So, and the percentages for the breast cancer were crazy, something like 85% by the time I was 45 year old. So it was just no way I was going to live wondering if it was going to get me at any time. So I chose in 2015 to have the double mastectomy. So, um, I did that, so I, I was just feeling like I was getting my pool game back, and then I had to have another surgery, which again is here. So again, difficult when you're trying to recover for playing. So I would say my game went very much like that. 
And then, so that was 2014, 15, and then 2016, I had the full hysterectomy, which was easy compared to the other two. <laughs> so um, my recovery, you know, it took, I thought, and I always stay confident, I thought oh, I can see it coming back up now, but it was very much like that. And I had a little glitch in my stroke that, whether it was psychological or what I didn't tell anybody at the time, but there was something funky going on and I couldn't, it was like from here, normally people pull back and they can't let go that way. Well, I couldn't pull back. Mm. I'm like, and I'd pull back and it goes through very, very quick. And, you know, I played it off at the time thinking it was just, not bothering me but it really I it took me about three years and I would say for only for the last year and a half so it really took me till about 2018 I would say until I really felt like I fixed it and that was a lot of dedication a lot of hard work uh Lionel helping me I got another couple of coaches just to see their opinion on how to to get over it and um so I had more what I'm trying to say is is I thought I'd got over everything great and I was, you know, going to come fighting back. And I did, but there was definitely more of an impact of all that, if you like, um, that did affect I had this glitch and thank God I've feel like I've got over it now, but uh, I stuck in there. I dug in there. And uh, now the only thing is the hormones. <laughs> Speaking of hormones earlier is that obviously having the fullest hysterectomy, I've got to have hormone treatment. And uh, so sometimes, you know, I do find it took me a while to find the balance for that too. And sometimes that can change as well. But other than that, yeah, I just keep digging in. I love the game and uh, I feel like I am back. And obviously last year winning the world championships was just, that's why it meant so much, you know, after coming through all that, and uh, I felt my game was at the top and my game before the surgeries. And then it yo-yoed, yo-yoed, then the glitch. And I'm like, and it took me a lot of hard work. And then to finally, when I, when I won that world championships after all that, and I'm over 40 and I beat, you know, all the Chinese players were there. It were like, it meant so much. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you yeah. so much for sharing all that. That was, uh, <clears throat> you know, that's an incredible story. And, you know, it kind of, in some ways, you know, when I was 28, I had tonsil cancer and, you know, I never smoked, you know, rarely drank, you know, and it was just one of those weird things where I ended up having tonsil cancer and, you know, um, stage three and, you know, 50% chance of living and, you know, all that. And so I went through treatments and everything. And, but, you know, I kind of, uh, I look at adversity sometimes now differently, you know, than I did before, you know, and it's so weird because it's just a pool game, you know, and even at your, you know, you're, you're a professional and to you, it's a pool game, but it's your, you make a living at it, you know, but compared to life issues, you know, life issues like life and death, that's big stuff. But I still use that sometimes as motivation. You know, I'm down eight to two in a race to nine. It's like, I've been through worse. I can get it done. (laughs) I don't know if you ever feel that way. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, I try to look at, um, and I do think it teaches you a few things when you've, you know, experienced stuff um, so severe like that. And, you know, even losing family, close members like your parents, especially, you know, that's taught me a lot. And, you know, I'm not saying that any, I would wish that upon anybody to teach them things, but I do think you do. You have to use them experiences to try and grow you as a person. And uh, I certainly think I've done that. And I think that I've used my unfortunate or my whether you want to call it unfortunate or whatever unfortunate that I found the, 
the cancer gene early before I'd got any cancer, thank God. So very fortunate in, in that way. But And I used all that stress and worry and that life and death and that worry of that kind of thing um, and experience all that experience, I, I try and use that for, you know, for the better good for my game or, or just in general in life, to be honest with you. So yeah. if we can all learn from, from life's experiences and try and turn them around into a positive in the best way we can, uh, whether, whatever it's about, I think, you know, that's a, that's a great thing. So anybody struggling with the game, you know, if they can, if they can know that just dig in and just keep on playing and you'll come through. I, I experienced it for like three years and nobody knew. I didn't tell anybody I was struggling with my game. But I, I knew there was something wrong with this glitch with my arm. And um, only my close people knew. And uh, even the play, other players that I'm friends with, I didn't even tell anybody. <laughs> but you know, I didn't want to. You know, they were my opponents yeah. away from the, on the table, you know. so um, And I wondered if I would ever, ever win another event based on this. I couldn't pull the cue back. I, it was a mental block. And uh, it went on for too long. And it was panicking me. It really was. So, but I believed in myself and I knew, you know, if I practiced hard enough and believed in myself enough and just battled through it, that I could fix it. And I did. So if that's a little bit of inspiration for anybody out there, then yeah. dig in deep. And so, you know, speaking of your opponents, who would you say has been your biggest rival over the years? Well, in different eras, at times of the game, different eras of the game, if you like, I would say there's been different, you know, I've been playing 30 years. We've got different decades to talk about. There's not been one player. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> I would say, for example, Alison Fisher and Snooker, when I started playing Snooker, she was the one, I didn't know her from Adam, and she was the one that I wanted to be. She was my inspiration. She was my goal, my target, if you like. And she left for America before I was, I think I was 16 years old. So I never really, she beat me in a few finals. I never really got that chance to to peek at my game to even, you know, I never beat her, but that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. At snooker. She, and she took off before I could. I'm only joking. But yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, at that time, that was um, the 90s. And then Karen Core, she took over. She was winning the event. So that she was my new uh, player to be, if you know. I mean, I'm, I'm only 16, 17 years old. And, and then I did manage to, to win a few titles off Karen. And then she went to America. And um, after that, I was doing really well. So then I come to America. So who's the number one again? Alison, who's number two? Karen, you know, so there we go. I'm back at them again. <laughs> um, but then obviously started traveling to Asia and that's a whole, you know, an all new breed really um, of players. So then you've got obviously Guy Young Kim. She was playing in America too. Um, she was a player that I, you know, we always fought very hard against each other sometimes I'd win easy sometimes she'd win easy or sometimes it was hill hill um and then you know Chen Simin Han Yu we you know we can and obviously even your Ruben Amit and um there's there's many a great player Taiwan players So Yu, Wei Chen. you know there's just too many to mention so but as far as the two iconic players in my life in my 30 years that popped up in two separate well two separate decades have been Alison and Karen, I would say. <laughs> yeah. And we've enjoyed watching a lot of those battles over the years for sure. So yeah, whenever I watched you play, uh, you know, I, I actually watched a couple matches last night on YouTube. Um, 
I just get this feeling like that you're like the, I think the first time I ever saw you in a tournament, your hair was spiked and, you know, you had this intimidating presence. You got, you, you were very deliberate. And, you know, when you went to shoot your shots, it seemed like you hit balls a little harder than I would hit them, you know? And I was just like, wow, you know, she's here to play, you know? Um, but I had this feeling uh, just watching you play in your matches about your mental toughness that, you know, it was kind of a step above a lot of other people. You know, do you have any thoughts about, you know, the way you view the game mentally uh, that's given you an edge that could help other people? Well, I was very fortunate to that my father, my dad, uh, my dad was a British champion amateur boxer. Mm. So when I was very little, when I was young, um, you know, he always, well, I basically learned boxing and I'm actually going to boxing class now every week, actually. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and then I went on and did Kung Fu. I did martial arts and I did Kung Fu and I trained for eight years in Kung Fu and got a black belt. And I think that had a lot of, you know, a lot of um, influence in my mental strength. So my dad always taught me, you know, you win your fights in the gym and nobody remembers second place, you know. So, you know, he always gave me that, that kind of, I don't know, just that he'd been involved in sport he was a champion and he, he gave me that edge I suppose or gave me that determination or gave me the tools but then obviously I met Lionel um, the, my coach and Lionel and my dad and me you know we were just like a three man three musketeers if you like and Lionel <laughs> being my mentor and my dad being my you know um, disciplinary <laughs> I would say between the three of us with them two on my side you know it was really I couldn't have asked for anything better um, that along with the discipline I learned at Kung Fu and the mental toughness and mental strength, I think that, you know, it's certainly um, a meditation and, you know, just the things you learn along the way. But I'd say that the Kung Fu, my dad and Lionel were definitely um, my assets and what helped me with my mental strength, you know, taught me to believe in myself and that we can do anything if you put your mind to it. That's really interesting because you're the second person that I've had on the show that has a martial arts background. And uh, I had CJ Wiley on and he talked right. about his martial arts background. And, you know, it might be an interesting thing to explore for other players, like a complimentary mm -hmm. thing when they're not playing pool. You know, I think in the United States, we find there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time in pool rooms, right? And yeah. they kind of get into that one track, you know, where they're just pool players and that's all they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think being more well-rounded and picking up something like martial arts or meditation or yoga or mm -hmm. something that would help them be able to focus better mentally could be a huge benefit, you know? Yeah. Well, Chen Si Min, she's a black belt also in Tai, tai Chi or Taekwondo. I forget which, which martial art it is now, but she's, um, yeah, she's a black belt too. And um, yeah, I know a few players that have dabbled in the martial arts that are, are great players. Um, I think it's good to, especially when you're young, you know, if you've got a, ch a child that, you know, you want to get them into, whether it's golf, snooker, pool, any pool, sorry, snooker, but golf, anything. I think it's good. Uh, a good discipline is such as martial arts because, you know, it, they, they teach you the mental side um, of your yourself, really. Like, like it's like a meditation um, as well as, you know, giving you the confidence that you can do anything you want with your mind. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be great. I, I've, like I said, I've started doing boxing again for fitness. And 
a couple about a year ago, I was doing kung fu, but it was just a bit too much. I'm getting older now. <laughs> I'm getting older now, and you know, I, I was a bit too much. I was scared I would injure. You've got to be careful for injury, of course. Yeah. Um, so I've just stuck to the fitness women's boxing class, but I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. I do. Um, so yeah, I think it's something to uh, think about for other players. Yeah, I think we nowadays we need to take it. And I'm not saying before they never, but it's important if you're playing professionally or you want to be a top player or a top professional player that we have to treat it like a sport, like you're playing a sport. Just because it's not a physical sport doesn't mean that even though with my weight fluctuates up and down, but I'm always doing something. I'm always doing something um, as far as fitness. And I think you know it's important that we, we try and treat it like a sport and try and be an athlete try and live as healthily as we can I mean I've had times during my career where I've not done that everybody <laughs> but you know I've certainly as I'm getting older I'm getting more and more uh where I'm, I'm looking at being more disciplined with that side of it doing some yoga meditation and stuff like that as well as trying to be a lot healthier I think that's really sound advice. So I noticed the patches on your shirt. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your sponsors. Um, Great. Well, um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, Fury, as everybody knows, I've been with them forever. Um, I started out since I moved to America in 2003, four, sorry. Um, I signed a deal with Fury in 2005 and I've been with them ever since. Wow. So yeah, Fury have been, I think I had a gap of a couple of years where I brought out my own quick fire brand and then they, they ended up helping me with that. So yeah, we've been together for the 15 years I've been playing pool. Um, so a great thank you to them supporting me through my ups and downs, you know, all my surgeries, all the times I weren't winning, uh, as well as, you know, being there for me, whether I were winning or not. So um, thank you for Fury for that. And um, Xing Zhui, which is um, tables, Chinese eight ball, American nine ball, snooker tables. Uh, they're obviously, as you all know, the Chinese brand, but they're fantastic quality. And uh, yeah, they've been great support now for, I think I'm on my fourth or fifth year with them. So wow. <clears throat> again, through all the good and the bad. So, you know, I'm very, very lucky and thankful to have these sponsors. And without them during this COVID, it would have been possible. Yeah. So thank you. And again, without guys like yourself, Joey, for promoting our sport and, keeping us out there, the virtual events we've been doing, all the promoters that are trying to push and keep us out there in the social media to keep our sport alive and keep everybody interested in watching it and the fans are watching it. Without everybody like that, you know, we need that just to keep uh, to keep our game flourishing. So yeah, well, thanks, thank Kelly. Yeah. Thanks, Kelly. What's next for you in terms of what there is left to accomplish? Like, what are some of your goals that you have left in your pool career? Well, I would say I, you know, I, I'm never satisfied. I mean, I really, while ever I'm playing in any event, my goal is to do the best I can. And of course, you know, my goal is to, to, event, to try and win the event, but I don't think of that leading into the event. I just play the best I can. And I want to, <clears throat> I'd say I want to win another world title, but I've won, and I'm not being, I've won nine ball and 10 ball and I've won snooker and English billiards. So I've not won an eight ball title, world title. <laughs> so, and we've, I've joked with people about this, but I think at the moment I'm the only one to have won nine ball, 10 ball, snooker and English billiards. 
So um, I know Alison's won everything all over, 100 times, but she never won a 10 ball world championship. So I, I managed to just squeeze that one um, from her. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, so I think I would love to win an eight ball world championships, but we've, we've not really had, uh, I've not played in an eight ball world championships ever. So I heard that this year we were supposed to possibly have one. And obviously with COVID, everything's been turned mm-hmm. upside down. So I hope we can have an eight ball world championships and uh, that would be, you know, a real goal and um, a dream for me to, to win, to kind of complete that. But um, basically I got a bronze medal in the world games. I've been to the world games twice. I got a bronze medal and I would love nothing more than a gold medal. That would be something I would, uh, you know, be honored to, to achieve. And um, I always wanted to be in the Hall of Fame. And when I was inducted this year, I was, oh, I couldn't believe it. I was so, so honored to be in, in, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And that was always a dream. So, uh, you know, thank you to everybody for that. But yeah, it was, uh, so that's, I think that's my, my goals. And just to win as much as I can, or just to play well, that's, you know, and enjoy it and love it. And whenever I think I can win a tournament, I'll keep playing. When I don't think I can win, then it's time to commentate or something. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, congratulations on an amazing career. And it's so good to hear that you still have things that you want to accomplish in the sport because we don't want to see you go yet. So (laughs) hang at it. And I want to give you an opportunity just to leave the audience with any final thoughts from Kelly Fisher, anything, uh, words of wisdom or just anything for the fans. Well, again, thank you all, all to all the fans, all you guys for all your support. We really couldn't do it without you. And, um, you know, I hope that we can all get over this virus. It can come to an end soon and uh, we can all get back to life somewhat as normal. And I'll be coming back over to America and playing in real events and seeing you all again. So keep the support. Thanks, everybody. And uh, when you can, get back on the practice table. If you're looking to improve your game, put some hours in. Stay confident and don't give up.